So part of that getting hit and getting up and overcoming pain is almost like a rite of passage where you have to go through the fire. Sometimes, like you said, you will spar with someone who's better than you, no matter how hard you try. And if you get angry, it's not going to change anything. So that part of it forces you to just learn to almost control your emotions in a fight. And that's becoming more um, mature because a child just gets angrier and angrier when they're losing. But an adult becomes more more calculated and more calm because they realize what they were doing doesn't work. So that's kind of like another rite of, of passage of maturity. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is martial artist and coach Warren Williams. Warren is a peaceful warrior traveling on the path of growth, having learned that life itself is the lesson. With over 25 years of martial arts practice, 20 years studying meditation, energy healing, and emotional self-management, and 14 years mastering the Czech system of conditioning and life coaching, Warren has successfully worked with a diverse clientele, including elite world-class sportsmen and women, corporate leaders, and those deemed medical failures. All right. Well, I'm very, very excited to share one of the amazing Czech instructors, Warren Williams, who has an extensive background in martial arts. And our topic today is martial arts for individuation and spiritual development. So, Warren, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check and Warren Williams. <laughs> hey, so grateful to be here. I'm so I've been listening to um, the um, podcast so far, and man, you've done an amazing job. And the guests have been inspiring, so I'm kind of glad to kind of share in that and to kind of keep that output that you've been putting out. So, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. I just wanted to share a little bit about our background to begin with. Um, Warren, you started uh, training with me how long ago? <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, do you know the first um, – I think the very first uh, workshop you did in London – um, I think it was something like Posture and Pain, so 2001. Wow. My, yeah, my first introduction to you, 2001. It's funny because when I actually got there, I was trying to find a place. I don't know if you remember this, but when I actually got there, um, I was like, is this the place? And you jumped out of a black cab. And I was like, okay, this is the place. Because <laughs> you were up you there. I was like, right, I definitely know I'm here now. So, yeah, so that was my first experience of you. And the story behind that is kind of funny because – I was working in a gym and um, the manager at the time was really into mysticism and spirituality. And he was like, um, there's some workshop coming up in a couple of months with some guy called Paul Check. And it's really seems to kind of push all the buttons. You know, it's really something that I think we're both interested in. So he kind of through the, through the gym actually booked both of us onto the course um, he eventually actually left the company and actually traveled the Far East to kind of get deeper into himself. But it had already been paid for, so I was like, all right, I'll go. And then I went to this workshop, and I just remember you just, you know, talking and just breaking things down, and there were osteopaths, chiropractors, pe personal trainers, and it's almost like everybody was scared to answer your questions because they realized they were in front of a master. And <laughs> That's what I thought straight away. And, you know, at the time, I actually, having done martial arts for such a long period of time by then, I actually thought I knew a lot about the body. And then when I saw and witnessed your knowledge, I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to study everything this guy does. And that's what I did. I studied everything he'd done. So I think 2002 was when I did my first workshop, my first internship with Janet Alexander at the time. And that was um, in Eastbourne in 2002. So obviously I've gone through that. I did the very first um, HLC one and two with you and Dr. Oliver and Emma Lane. I think that was 2003, maybe in, in Eastbourne. Um, and that was when you were kind of <laughs> finishing each day about 9 p.m., which was <laughs> back in my military education days, like sit down and pay attention because I'm going to be leaving in a few days and that's yeah. it. Because <laughs> the, the thing is, is everything you say is important. So I was just writing notes, getting tired because it was late. But I was like, you know, what? everything's important. And yeah, that, that was kind of my intro into 2001 is kind of when I got into work and just wanted to start with, started studying everything you did. Well, cool. Well, I know you have a long background in martial arts and, and we'll get into that. Mm. Um, you and I, uh, of course, have interacted over the years in courses and whenever I would come to London, often we would uh, meet each other here either at a class or at wherever I was staying and I remember I did a interview with you and Emil Heskey. Oh. And um uh one time we were in Australia together though and and um uh, we were visiting Donald and Kathy Carr and their boys and they found out you were a martial artist and I remember uh the boys asked you to do a demonstration and I I was like okay I got to see this and <laughs> and I was like oh my god this guy's just like one of the martial artists in the movies you know you were doing amazing high flying spinning kicks and all sorts of uh you know very advanced moves with great fluidity and so though I'd heard about your martial arts it was the first time I'd actually seen you display those skills and I as a guy who spent a lot of time in martial arts myself and knows katas and forms and and you know has a, a knowledge of movement i went okay this guy's for real he's definitely got the uh he's got the spirit of martial arts in his soul yeah i mean that was it was an honor to be able to do that and like you said to kind of perform um from for these children obviously children are quite um influenced they want to see all the fancy stuff they don't want to see the basic punch don't show me a punch show me a kick no. spin around <laughs> do the box yeah. so you know i had to do all the crazy stuff so yeah that was cool yeah and, yeah it was cool I to spend it. some time it was cool to spend some time with you in australia it was so beautiful the way that kind of all synchronized because you traveled to australia from america emil hesky my client traveled to australia from england but you both ended up at the same airport at the same time in the same line and yeah yeah and i remember emil called me on on whatsapp and he was like i think that's paul check in front of me because he'd only just been, been introduced to you from me and uh, i goes are you sure and he goes well he's a big guy bald-headed with five fingers i goes yes probably paul check <laughs> he goes <"Do> you <laughs> He goes, do you think it would be right if I go and talk to him? I go, yeah, Paul's cool, yeah. And then you spoke to him and then you witnessed him kind of getting all of that celebrity, all the media and stuff with it because obviously he was coming into that country to um, play and stuff. So that was really cool as well. And then he had to travel to a different part of Australia and I was kind of free from working with him for four days. And those are the same four days that you had done your scientific breathing workshops. It was perfect. And I was able to drive down to Donald Carr's house and spend a few days with you guys. So just the beauty and synchronicity of having that 
actual time over that one month that I was there and it just fit perfectly where I could spend some time with you guys. That was cool. Yeah. So before we get into it, I'll just say for all the listeners that Warren is a holistic lifestyle coach, level one and two instructor for the Czech Institute. So he's not only completed all the training as a Czech practitioner level four, but he has done the extensive training to be an HLC instructor and teaches HLC one and two, which there's not too many people that have done that degree of training. So, uh, for those of you listening, he's definitely a real bona fide practitioner, walks that walk and talks the talk beautifully. He's in harmony with all the teachings. So he's also been applying the principles that I teach in his work with clients and athletes and martial artists and various people from all walks of life for a long time. So he's not only got a deep understanding of martial arts, but he has a deep understanding of life spiritual development, lifestyle coaching, and the issues that everybody deals with. So with that uh, intro, Warren, could you give Ooh. us a, a definition of martial arts? What is it? What do, what do you feel is included? Because like God or soul or mind, there's, you know, a lot of people think that they know what we're talking about when we say martial arts. They usually just think it means beating people up. <laughs> but uh, what what would you define martial arts to be? to set the stage for our discussion today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, like you said, it is open to such interpretation at a base level. Most people think martial arts is just about learning techniques to apply principles of, of brutality to people. And, and it goes so much deeper than that. So as a definition, um, martial arts has several that are quite similar. One is it's known as the killing arts one of them. Um, and another breakdown is it's any of several oriental arts of weaponless self-defense. Um, it also relates to um, the art of fighting or finding oneself. It can also break down as, as to um, the empty hand and um, the application of the arts. So those are kind of like the ones that I feel are most applicable to martial arts the sense of finding the inner warrior and using the skills of the ability to kind of maim or hurt in a way where you are responsible right okay so there there's a there's a common thread in there which which is hurting people <laughs> yeah yeah but i think we're gonna get a lot deeper than that today and and mm. of course uh, you know, that's one of the issues that we want to address and and help people understand what that really means. Yeah. In other words, when people are using those arts ineffectively or non-spiritually or in ways that don't enhance their growth and development mm. um, for all the reasons we're going to get into. So thanks for the overview. I'd love it if you can give us an overview of your childhood years the kind of experiences you went through and what ultimately inspired your participation in martial arts? Well, going back to um, childhood, um, I was always inspired. This may sound strange, but I was always inspired by um, comics and um, just this idea of becoming more than the normal human because what we when we look at humanity today and we look at the people that are around, we typically see carbon copies of ourselves, people that don't feel that they can achieve more or grow beyond their station. 
And I was always thinking, no, there's got to be more to this than just living. You know, that whole saying of um, you're born, you have children, you get the white picket fence, you get the dog, you buy a home and you die. And I was like, no, there's got to be more than that. It can't just be you, 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 you were born to be normal, to be limit, limited and then just die. I was like, no, there's got to be more than that. And when I saw these comics and saw all of these larger than life uh, beings that had physical powers that had the ability to control their minds or control the environment. And they were able to influence their environment by helping people that kind of inspired me to want to seek masters because, you know, and I know you've referred to this in one of your talks with Kyle Kingsbury, which is really good as well about this whole idea of the hero's journey. One of the things that inspired me about the comics was they always had some form of master. And I thought, what's the one thing I can look at that kind of, has this idea of becoming invincible by seeking a master, and that was martial arts. So from a very early age, um, I wanted to find out what was the limits of my physical capabilities beyond what most people think is normal. And I found that martial arts was a good application of being able to test your limits because it's one, challenging yourself, but it's also two, challenging yourself against another. And in that sense, you're able to actually see whether or not you've improved because there's there are other people that you can actually practice your skills on it's one thing to be in a gym and to um lift weights or to swim far and squat hard and all sort of stuff but to actually have somebody else who's doing the same form as you and be better than them that kind of was the mirror to show you you are improving and your understanding of martial arts is improving beyond just the training so that's kind of how I kind of wanted to kind of get into it and the reason and why it was more just to do a self-development self and challenging myself in some art form. And I found martial arts quite beautiful because even though, like you said at the start, a lot of people see it as kind of brutality, there's a beauty to it. It's not just going in and hitting somebody. It's actually understanding how much damage you can do and why you have to be responsible when, when doing it. Um, so that's that's kind of where I started at probably about nine years old and I started practicing um, karate, also known as the empty hand. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed that. I did that for about six years before I got into uh, another martial art called Lao Ga Kung Fu, which was almost the opposite, whereas karate is quite hard and quite rigid with straight lines. Kung Fu is quite soft and has more circular uh, movement patterns. So that was a good kind of bridge for me to balance one and the other. So it was almost like a yin and yang. So I kind of started that and I was still doing the karate at the same time. But when I did both, I realized, well, they're both stand-up martial arts. There must be another facet to this. So then I started to learn about wrestling. So I started to study um, when I was about 16 I started to study um, Sombo, which is um, Russian wrestling, which comes from Mongolian wrestling. Um, and then I added that into it. And then eventually got to the point where I'd studied about seven different um, martial arts. So that's kind of how I got into just st studying one martial art, getting to a certain level, and then moving to another one, realizing that there's some imbalances or flaws, moving to another martial art. Yeah, well, you know, when you speak of the beauty of martial arts, I think most people who have an affinity for martial arts would immediately think of Bruce Lee, don't you think? Yes, definitely. And, you know, he was, um, 
you know, a great example. He was one of the people that I studied. And, you know, like you said, going back to the start where people just think martial arts, okay, you're studying martial arts just because you want to be able to hurt people. One of the things that you learn is that a lot of these true martial artists are very wise. They have this wisdom behind the the power that they have. And, you know, I always remember going back to the comics. Um, there was this comic uh, with this character called Spider-Man and he had an uncle, Uncle Ben. And when Uncle Ben found out that Spider-Man, who had obviously hidden his um, identity for many years at this point, Uncle Ben found out that he was Spider-Man, you know, his nephew. And he said to him, look, nephew, I want to tell you something with all these powers you've got. And I always remember this phrase, and it kind of stuck with me through my life as a martial artist. With great power comes great responsibility. Amen. And that was just like, wow. You have to be responsible because now you know how to hurt somebody and you know how to hurt somebody easier than most other people. So you have to be responsible with that level of knowledge, skill and power. And seeing Bruce Lee and how humble and calm and how much of a philosopher he was, was a good um, kind of icon to kind of see. And, you know, his whole philosophy, like a lot of people don't realize that Bruce Lee had a degree in philosophy. So he was quite a philosophical, quite a deep thinker. And this kind of re- refers me back to something that I'd heard you say um, some years ago. Um, you said you have to be f- fit to think. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe if you practice something like martial arts, which is quite, you know, quite strenuous, then maybe it's going to make you fit enough to go into deep thinking. And that's another beautiful expression of martial arts, the ability to think as well as be able to hurt. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorite movies ever is Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. And uh, it was interesting. One day I uh, was at my office. This is probably around, oh, I don't know, 2005, I would guess. But uh, all of a sudden, one of my assistants comes running in. Paul, you have a phone call. You're not going to believe who it is. I said, who is it? It's Chuck Norris. And so... uh, Long and the short of it, Chuck Norris hired me as his therapist to help him rehabilitate a hip injury. Mm. Um, he'd actually had a total hip replacement and was ha- having a lot of pain and, and wanted to, you know, know how to rehabilitate himself. And so, uh, you know, he was the he was featured on Total Gym's infomercials for years, and and I've got a long running relationship with Total Gym. So when he was having problems, they referred him to me, and I ended up going up to his house and spending time with him and, you know, putting him on a corrective exercise program and giving him diet tips and things like that. But it was interesting because, you know, he was in the movie Enter the Dragon. Mm. So it was kind of like a childhood, uh, you know, almost like a mysterious loop back where I've watched that movie a few times and and not realizing one day I'd be actually working with one of the guys in the movie. And most people know who Chuck Norris is, so it's kind of cool. Um, when you were doing competitive martial arts, were you entering tournaments or were you doing it more for personal development? And if you did enter tournaments, how did you do? Yeah, so I think for me, one of the things that I found was martial arts was my forte. It was something that I was very very good at um I know it sounds kind of egotistical but it was something I was I was natural at and when I started martial arts um I I was one of the few people at the time that actually double graded and double grading is 
when you go, you basically train for three months to learn all the cutters and the forms and um, all the different techniques you need to, to then demonstrate in front of a group of your peers, you know, higher grades and um, the masters. Um, so you normally will grade for one belt, but in the rare occasion where sometimes somebody is better than the status quo or everybody else in, in the grading, they ask you to stay behind and wait for the next grade up and grade with them. Right. And so I did that twice in a row. I double graded twice in a row. So I jumped belts quite quickly. And I think um, my instructor at the time, because he was building his practice, it would be good for him to have people that were good at fighting because obviously fighting sells your club. Um, So he kind of saw my aptitude for martial arts and encouraged me to go into tournaments. And I'd only been doing martial arts maybe six, seven months at the time. And he said, no, we need you to get into these tournaments. So, yes, I started to enter tournaments, and then I loved it. And it wasn't about hit, you know, beating people up. These tournaments are what we call um, semi, um, semi-contact. semi Yeah, I've been in them myself, point, yeah. point, point exactly. tournaments. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, going back to what we were saying before about the brutality of it, imagine being able to throw, and I know you know this, Paul, but I'm just sharing this with, with the listeners. Imagine being able to throw a punch as hard as you can at somebody who's constantly moving, but yet have the control to be able to only touch them without hurting them. Yeah. That shows the beauty of martial arts. And so we're not going in there trying to hurt people. We're going in there to try to effectively strike them without being struck back. And so I entered a lot of those semi-contact tournaments, but our ones were bare knuckles. The only protection we had was green guards and a gun shield. So we had no shin guards, no foot, foot protectors and no um, no mitts on our hands. It was just gum shields and, and groin guards. So it's very hard not to cut someone. I'm, you know, you know, Paul, if you just tap someone on their chin, they could bite their lip and you can cut them quite easily. Yeah. Yeah. So I entered those tournaments. And um, in answer to your question about how well I did, well, I actually was able to keep a record. Um, so I had 210 fights. Wow. Yeah. And I, I um, won 189. That's damn good, buddy. Yeah, it was um it was um so such fun and there was a year where I went I I lost one fight and won ninety in one particular year. And then I got to the point where I was um invited because obviously you have to be invited. I was invited to train with the um England um national karate team. And so I trained with the um, team, well, I trained with the squad first to get into the team. So I trained with the squad up in Liverpool. So that's like about a four-hour drive from London. Um, and the training is quite vigorous. It's about four hours. So it's quite a long day. And your goal is to try to basically take someone's spot <laughs> in yeah. the team because there's only so many spots. Yeah, that's how they, the elite teams work. That's how it was on the Army boxing team. You can only get on if you beat somebody on the team. And yeah. you always have to stay sharp because any day someone can walk in the door. And if the coach chooses you for the tryout, you get beat, you're off the team. So it's a, it's a kind of an intense environment. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. As they say, a melting pot, iron sharps, iron. So, yeah, so I did that and I, I was with the England national karate team for maybe seven or eight months. Um, but then, um, you know, there's no money in it. And so it's like, you have to dedicate so much time to one training, your own personal training, and then two, doing the training for the team 
to then represent the country as well as do the training for the club to represent the club as well. So at the club level and at the international level, on top of your own personal training, it's quite hard. And I, I basically got to a point where I was training 14 times a week. Yeah, and that's a lot. Did you have yeah. over, did you have overtraining injuries? Um, do you know what? Not, not so much. I mean, I just got burnt out because like you said, you have to stay so sharp yes. all the time. And so what I found was people that I could be, I was losing to inspiring because I just lost the edge because as you always say, you know, it's better to under train than over train because at least you've got some reserves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was just, it was just, it was just too much. And, um, so I only, it was unsustainable as they say. And um, that probably lasted for about a year. And then I just pulled out of the um, England squad um, because the intensity is just way too high. There's no weight classes. So I'm not a big guy. You know, I'm like maybe 73 kilos. And you could be sparring with guys at 90 to 100 kilos. And because they don't want you to take their spot, they just hit harder. They just lack, they just stop their control. And it's just so hard to compete with people that are far bigger than you, but at the same level of technical skill. Yeah, so I, I I understand that. I I lived through that. That that, by the way, was one of the reasons that I left uh, traditional martial arts. I started out in Taekwondo, and and my master was a fourth degree black belt. He was a policeman, and. I had started boxing when I was 12. I think I got into Taekwondo probably when I was about, I don't know, 16. And uh, so I had a few years of boxing experience under my belt. But uh, the point fighting drove me batty. I absolutely did not like it. And the reason I didn't like it is because, like you said, the, the higher belt guys, if you started outperforming them, they would stop the pointing and start hurting yeah and whenever we were sparring these guys would be trying to kill you and and with my boxing background i I, my motto was i'm going to give you whatever you give me so if you want to do this like the instructor's asking us to then i'll play that game but if you start trying to beat on me i'm going to give it back to you and my instructor used to just go bananas because even when i had a white belt as soon Mm. as they started playing their hurt me games I just use my boxing skills and I could take these guys out and he would get so upset to have a white belt, basically debilitating black belts. And uh, ultimately I left Taekwondo because I I just could not express my, probably the anger that I had towards my father and and all the pent up just pain, you know, and I needed somewhere where I could really, uh, safely release that and and i didn't mind getting hit hard as long as i could return the favor so i found boxing more healing for me because i i found that there was too much um inequality in point fighting that it was uh it was more of a, a theory less of a reality and once i got to boxing then i could really uh, you know my motto as a fighter was I'm going to give you maximum opportunity to lose. Mm. And uh, so I trained very intensely and, and that ultimately was what prepared me. But what I did with my martial arts training is there were several of us in the same club that all felt 
that people were being given belts too quickly and they weren't earning it and they didn't have the skills to back up the belts. And as you know, a lot of these clubs give out belt for attendance so they can keep everybody happy and keep growing the business end of it. But, uh, me and a bunch of my buddies rented a warehouse and we built our own uh, kickboxing ring and put our own heavy bags and equipment in there. And we had week- weekly meetings where it was basically mixed martial arts. You can do whatever the hell you want. The only rule is you either get knocked out or you, or you throw in the towel and, and tap out. So I found that much more fulfilling because it allowed me to really test myself and yeah, test yeah. myself against people who I had respect for mm. as fighters. Yeah. One of yeah. the things I wanted to ask you is I know you have multiple black belts. What are the different forms that you have black belts in? Yeah, so I uh, I did um I got to a second dan in um, in Shotokan karate. Um, I got a black belt first degree in Laogar Kung Fu. And then I got, there's no real grading system in kickboxing, but I got to quite a high level in, in kickboxing. Um, I studied, um, jujitsu, but only for like about a year. So I didn't, it takes so long to get belts in jujitsu. Uh-huh. Um, so I studied it for a year. A lot of it was more just so I can get more, add more skills to what I'd learned. And the same with, with um, Mongolian wrestling. Um, they don't really give out belts, so it was more just learning techniques. Um, and then um, boxing, Western boxing, as they call it, obviously there's no belts in that. So I, I did that for maybe four years. And then also um, I studied um, a bit of Greco-Roman wrestling, so separate from Sombo, but the Olympic wrestling as well. So the only ones that actually had belts was the the karate and kung fu but you know in terms of just skills you know all those other martial arts definitely helped a lot to kind of complement each other because you know one of the things with martial arts that a lot of people don't realize is you can kind of put martial arts into four four kind of um realms one is long range then you've got a medium range close range and then the ground. Right. So, you know, I always wanted to break it down like that. And my forte um, when it came to martial arts was more long range because I loved kicking. Mm. One was because of all the Hollywood films and stuff. Yeah. And it looked cool. But two also, it's <laughs> the safest position from which to attack people because especially if you're really good with your legs, people can't actually hit you back. And I share a brief story. I, I had a friend who did Wing Chun and as you know, Wing Chun's very, very close quarters. And um, he wanted to just have a quick spar with me. And I was like, I'm not letting this guy close to me because that's his strength. So I just started kicking, kicking, kicking. And after a few minutes, he got really frustrated. He's like, that's not fair. You know, I can't get close to you. And I was like, what's fear? It's, fi- it's a fight. <laughs> you, know, <it's> so <laughs> you know, so he's definitely, you know, studying all the ranges and um, definitely getting my black belts and those. But like you said, um, there are a lot of belt chasers, we used to call them, people that participate in martial arts just to have a belt so they can look tough as opposed to truly understanding the essence of overcoming your weaknesses and your own ego and um, becoming very selfless and um, becoming more of a man or a woman you know, through the application of martial arts. There's definitely that too. Yes. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you that I think is an important one, at least for me, uh, there's a variety of cultural differences in martial arts systems used today. 
I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of the different systems in various cultures in the world and touch on the values and the motives that the different systems employ. Right. So great question. Right. So as an overview, kind of going back to what you asked me at the start about the meanings of martial arts, something that's an overview, a theme that is really um, un- underappreciated and under under misunderstood by those looking at martial arts from the outside as a art of brutality is this understanding of the of the word budo and budo is the code of martial arts it's the code of which martial arts are based um budo kind of relates to the martial way or the way of the way and this sounds like brutality again but it's the way of war which is a path or also kind of like the way of life. Right. Now, the interesting thing about this where people will start to realize it's deeper than hurting people is when it says there is no external enemy. There is only an internal enemy. And they have this statement which kind of overviews it all, which is my ego must be fought. Right. And I thought that was so beautiful because you, you are, your only true challenge is you and you're mastering the 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 Asian Asian mechanism. You're mastering um, your ego of trying to be better than somebody, and you're mastering you know that that wanton desire to cause destruction with all these tools that you have. Because oftentimes, a lot of people they have these tools; they just want to use them. And so, this mastery and this understanding of the martial way and the ego must be fought shows that it's real deep it's deeper than just learning how to hurt it's actually learning how to heal the inner self through destroying the ego part of you that wants to hurt others i think that's i don't remember the name of the bruce lee movie i I think it uh it might have even been his son acting in it uh where he ends up having to fight a master he's it's sort of like the Bruce Lee story. He's starting his own system yeah, yeah. and then there's another local guy and, and he ends up fighting the guy and, and basically you really see the battle right between yes. himself and the other guy. And ultimately yeah. in the end, you, you really see that the, 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 there's a deep, deep message in there and, and that even though he won, he knew he lost. <laughs> yeah. And I know what film you're referring to. It actually is quite a recent film. But like you said, it really encapsulates what we just said. So yeah, Bruce Lee kind of fights this guy, Wong Jack Man, who came from the Shaolin Temple. And short story, they kind of were upset that Bruce Lee obviously was teaching the Chinese martial arts to the Western world. So they brought this Shaolin master to kind of put him in his place. And the Shaolin master was so humble. And at the time, Bruce Lee was quite arrogant because he had things that nobody else could do. Yeah, And they had, as you said, they had this fight. And the comparison between how they fought, Bruce Lee was very, the way they depicted him in the film was very venomous with his striking and yeah. trying to do as much harm as possible. Whereas the monk was very gentle and deflective with his energy. And like you said, at the end, Bruce Lee kind of got to this point of self-realization where he realized he had to become what that master was. And that is, like you said, an encapsulation of destroying that ego part of yourself that wants to just harm, but, but actually realize in order for you to hurt, you should first learn to heal. Well, the other part of it is that the master got sucked into Bruce Lee's game. Yeah. And he ended up, you know, yeah, putting, yeah, yeah. trying to take Bruce Lee out because Bruce Lee was very much like Muhammad Ali. He, he kept egging him on and egging him on. And, you know, yeah. and so 
the beautiful thing in the end of the movie is that they both really learned something from each other. They, they found yeah. each other's weakness. Yeah. Yeah. And they became great friends. Yeah. So like you said, it was a good kind of, um, encapsulation of the light and the dark, which was, which is quite beautiful to see that aspect of martial arts. Again, something misunderstood by many that there is a softer side and it is, like you said, conquering that part of yourself that, because obviously we have, you know, the animal nature within us and then we have that kind of godly nature and the, the godly nature must try to rule the animal nature. Otherwise we'll just all go out and kill and rape and pillage if we don't have some form of restraint. And that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about martial arts is it teaches that, teaches that restraint, knowing that you can harm others because you're better than them, but choosing not to do it. And I think that's really the basis of being a samurai. Um, mm. You know, uh, I know a story from my studies of, of Zen Buddhism where they talk about how a samurai was sent to basically to kill a guy. And when he got there and approached the guy, the guy spit in his face and it pissed him off. Mm. And so he bowed down and left and didn't kill the guy basically because he had broken his samurai code of letting somebody else upset him or throw him, mm. throw him off center. So, you know, they're, they're in, inside of the martial arts as we are talking about and we'll discuss more. There, there is a deep spiritual element to it, but before yeah. we get into all that um, as a Czech professional, uh, and even before you became a Czech professional, I assume assume that you worked as a consultant or a coach or conditioning specialist for various high-level martial artists. I'm wondering if you can share a little about how the Czech system helped you as a martial artist and who you've worked with and what kind of challenges they need your help with or needed your help with or still do today. Yeah, um, just before I actually get into that question, I actually wanted to just go back to your previous question because I, I know I didn't kind of summarize some of the other martial Oh, yeah, martial please do, arts. please do. Yeah. So we went through the overview, but culturally, I mean, because this, you know, there's so many different martial arts, but what I basically I'm going to summarize is the different facets of martial arts. So, so we have what most people know of as Kung Fu, but true name is Gong Fu. And Gong Fu basically means achievement through great effort. So again, it's also working against or working with the self. Um, and that was something that, you know, it has very powerful spiritual components where there was an Indian monk called Dhamu who brought, you know, brought martial arts to the Shaolin temple. And this is really interesting because, because he came from India, um, to the Chinese temple, they refused to let him entry into the Shaolin temple to try to teach them. So because he was refused, he went into a, into a mountainside near the temple and he meditated for nine this is the story he meditated for nine years and the monks were so impressed by his devotion that they allowed him into the temple to teach so their first kind of um, connection to martial arts was this monk meditating in a cave for nine years so it shows you that martial arts foundation goes into this more into the, not brutality but into a more spiritual way and you know he so he kind of taught Kung Fu to the masses, and it was steeped in Buddhism and spirituality, translating Buddhism from Sanskrit to Chinese. And, you know, part of the precepts of Gong Fu, as it was called at the time, was um, one of the precepts was um, exercise to strengthen the body, 
The second precept was the art of cleansing the mind. And the third precept was the, was the meditative practice um, of movement and um, exercise and, and, you know, things like Tai Chi. So that's one of the martial arts that is kind of very steeped in mysticism and spirituality. Changing gears, we have capoeira. Um, and capoeira is quite different in its kind of um, cultural representation because capoeira was kind of formalized by Angolan slaves who were brought from Africa to Brazil and they kind of wanted to learn how to defend themselves against the slave masters. So they started to develop martial arts based on their culture, which was more dance related. So they kind of incorporated, they called capoeira disguise and dance. So they kind of infused martial arts into the dance. And this is around the um, 16th century, but it was the whole point of it was to just kind of learn how to defend themselves against the slave masters. And, you know, so a lot of their belief is kind of um, based on culture and spirituality and the dance and the connection that music has to, to their culture. So that's kind of like a different one. And then you have karate, which was formed in Japan, and it's very much about stoicism, um, being very strong-minded and using the empty hand to overcome um, an enemy. And then, as you've alluded to, we had samurai, and the samurai were the nobles of the military, the officers of medieval Japan, and they were obviously very much steeped in in honor and respect. And obviously, they used the sword. So you've got different kind of frameworks. You've got the, the Zen Buddhists and the, and the Shaolin monks. You've got the capoeira and the dance. You've got the karatikas who are so stoic and calm and quiet. And you've got the samurai who are so so kind of honorable. But they all have different cultures that are kind of amalgamating different techniques. But the underlying theme was always that Buddha. You know, so I kind of want to summarize that. Yeah, I wanted to just uh, share something here. In my studies of martial arts, uh, and it's been a long time since I've been in this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I, when I was studying Kung Fu, it was said that uh, the Shaolin monks developed Kung Fu as a defensive technique because their temples kept getting raided and people were getting killed and beat up. So they decided that they had to have a martial arts uh, technique and their focus of Kung Fu was to not harm people, but to disable them and, mm. and control them and remove them from the temples because, uh, you know, they were stealing their food and stealing everything they had, but they didn't want to actually injure people because it went against their spiritual practice. So their art was developed as a defensive art to, to disable a person just enough to be able to safely remove them. Um, have you, what's your knowledge of that? Yeah, um, like you said, it's there's so much um, kind of debate on where martial arts started. So there is definitely that aspect of it where they applied the techniques in a disarming way. The kind of um, debate that rages on is whether or not the Shaolin monks actually formed Kung Fu as Gong Fu itself, or was it that there's this one Indian monk who had already developed martial arts and brought it to the Shaolin temple. The, the second phase of what you're talking about is pretty much uniformly accepted as true, which is the Shaolin monks that had the martial arts skills were using it to disable people and to almost do no harm. So in more of a self-defensive way, it kind of reminds me of a saying 
that I'd heard some years ago about how do you become invincible? You become invincible by becoming defenseless. And I love that kind of summation because it's like letting go, doing less. And, you know, if someone throws a punch at you, don't try to force the block, just deflect it. Become right. defenseless, almost be like water. Yeah, that's very, very Bruce Lee, like the, the water element of it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's, so there's some debate on that, whether or not it was this um, monk, uh, Buddhama, Buddhiyama, something like that, this Indian monk, and they based that on the 5th century, and they say that the Shaolin Temple actually started martial arts with um, Shaolin Kwan, which was part of the spread of Buddhism in the 2nd the, um, century. Um, so there's still some debate about that, but some studies have said that martial arts has is as old as maybe 1.7 million years old, where um, the primitives at the time had developed techniques for cleaving, chopping, and stabbing, going yeah. back 1.7 million years. But as an actual formed martial art, most people just say it's the Shaolin Temple. But it's the, like I said, the debate is, was it an Indian monk that taught them and then they developed it? Yeah, in my own martial arts experience, but particularly boxing, you know, I didn't start boxing till I was 12, which is quite late when you start hanging out with elite fighters, most of them started really early, like four years old. And in, mm. if you get a good teacher in those developmental years, by the time you're 12, you could, you could be a black belt. So yeah. A, yeah. a lot of the guys on my boxing team were, were, you know, way, way ahead of me in their development. I remember one guy, Albert Wheeler, he was only 19 and he, and he had 320 fights under his belt. But uh, wow. my point is, is that, um, you know, when I, got on the army boxing team, I found the hardest people to deal with were, there were usually the black guys, uh, sometimes Puerto Ricans, sometimes Mexicans, but the, the good natural black fighters, they were very slippery guys. I mean, they moved like water and you just had, they were very hard to hit. Mm. And I remember many times just feeling so frustrated. It was like fighting a ghost and, and, <laughs> Uh, you know, so that defensive capability can be incredibly powerful when it's mastered. Mm. So moving on, uh, tell us a little mm. bit about how you've applied the, the Czech system. And I'm not doing this for marketing. It's just because, as you know, it's a very comprehensive, holistic system that's based on uh, the science of movement with regard to life itself and all human beings. So I'm wondering, how did you apply that and what kind of uh, what kind of benefits or changes did you see either in your own body or in the people that you work with? Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because like you said, it, it is powerful. When I started martial arts, it was um, 1989 is when I started martial arts. And um, obviously, like I didn't get into your work until 2001. And, you know, what I found is obviously everything – if we're staying current, everything is evolving. We learn more, we get better with time. I mean, in some respects, <laughs> obviously there are some things that are de-evolving, but in terms of understanding movement, um, martial arts is progressing in, in certain ways, but the, the training was still very, very old school. So we were doing a lot of very old stretching, which was quite bad for you. We were doing a lot of ballistic stretching. Yes. Where before you even warm up, you're swinging leg up to your head, and I was like, knowing what I know from the studies I'm done with you, I'm like, no wonder I had so many injuries. I, you know, as a joke, I, 
I used to get injured so much that my friends used to call me the Highlander because <laughs> I could never die. <laughs> I could just keep getting injured. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Highlanders never die. Yeah. And I was picking up so many injuries. So in answer to your question, when um, from about 2003, I'd suffered a really bad injury. I was, I was off martial arts for um, maybe nine months. And that really made me evaluate what I was doing. And so I started to apply a lot of the principles I learned from you um, through scientific back training. And, um, and a lot of the stuff we learned in CP1 and just when I go, when I'd go to the martial art classes, I wouldn't do their stretches anymore. I would only do the functional stretching that I'd learned through your courses. And what I found that because I had this long break, I was able to really just focus on functional training and the improvements I found in my body was one incredible balance. Good. So one of the things that obviously in boxing, you are always pretty much, other, other, other than momentarily, you are always pretty much on two feet at all times. Yeah. So balance, balance isn't as compromised. Whereas in martial arts, and especially because how I thought was 70% legs, you were on one leg. So your balance is always compromised, especially if you kick a lot. And because you're spinning, now you're spinning on one leg at high speed. That can throw your balance off massively, can challenge your nervous system at such a high level. And then you're trying to spin on one leg and try to hit someone yeah. who's constantly moving. So your center of so, gravity is moving very dynamically. Yeah. And then the other person could possibly push you off your center of gravity as well. So what I found was having done, and as you know, I love doing the Swiss ball stuff and I've had really good mastery of learning how to stand on the Swiss ball and stuff. And once I went back to, and because as, as you've always taught us, because the Swiss ball is threatening to the nervous system because you could fall off and the brain's trying to protect your body. So it turns on as many muscles as possible to stop you from injuring yourself or falling or dying. And because I'm moving on a stable surface when it comes to being in a martial arts dojo, when I went back, my nervous system was so much more in tune at a higher level due to doing all this incredible work on an unstable surface, being the Swiss ball and your exercises, that when I stood on one leg and I started to spin and do kicks, I was shocked at how much control I had and how much faster I could actually rotate. And I'm not just saying this because we're trying to say, no, check system is the best in the world or whatever, because it is. But the, my martial art instructors were blown away. They were like, I can't believe you've been away for nine months and you're actually better because they just assumed I wasn't doing anything. Right. And I was better. I was faster. I was rotating faster than everybody. And then the other thing I found outside of balance was because I was doing, because, you know, in, in martial arts, they don't really, especially in traditional martial arts, they don't really um, motivate you or tell you to do anything outside of karate training to supplement or give you any form of base conditioning platform or program. So I was just doing martial arts and getting stronger and more flexible just through, through martial arts. So once I was able to start supplementing the martial art training with the functional training, the nervous system integration, and you know learning about the sling systems and how to fire them, I became so much stronger through the functional training to support my martial arts that what actually happened when I went back, I was sparring with a guy for the first time since my you know, really 
through, through, since my injury and since really devoting myself to mastery of the um, functional training aspects of the of the tech model. You know, when I when I sparred with this guy, I had so much more power. I didn't know how to control it. And you know, when we're sparring, we're supposed to be not hurting someone. And I actually kicked this guy in in the head, and um, he fell on the ground, and blood started coming out of his ear. And I was like, "Oh, sugar!" <laughs> and my, uh, <laughs> sugar. <laughs> that's about right. Sugar, <laughs> sugar, sugar can than- kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was as harmful as sugar to this guy yeah. and and you know my my instructor after the class he said you know it's obvious that you've had a massive jump in power you now don't know how to control it and i was like yeah um because i'd be, i'd gotten so much more strength and power so much more um intermuscular and intramuscular coordination through you know the functional training that i i no longer realized how much power i had because i hadn't tested it on anyone i'd only been doing the work so i it took me i don't know how long maybe six months to a year to be able to in martial arts kind of control that amount of power that i had from doing the functional training and at the time nobody else in my club was doing functional training to support their martial arts they were just doing martial arts and so i had a massive advantage over everybody because again people were breaking down they didn't understand the, sw- the sling systems they didn't understand the importance of the four doctors and the six foundational principles and so on and having applied starting to apply all of all of that sort of stuff i had a massive advantage over everybody and it got to the point where the only person in the club from a competitive point of view that could keep up with me was my instructor well that's and that's beautiful he, and he struggled yeah, and he struck. And he was—he he always beat me. He always beat me, and I loved the fact that he always beat me. But he—you could see him in his eye was like, "Oh my gosh, uh, I'm struggling here." It's like you know those martial arts films where the guy has to get to his final style to beat you. Yeah, it was kind of like that. He had to use his final style. So definitely, the 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 improvements I felt through utilizing the functional training increased my um, skill set my power my control my balance tenfold and the second part of the question which you asked earlier about who i've kind of worked with and applied this in, in terms of fighting i haven't really worked with many mma fighters um to apply or mixed martial arts fighters to apply um the check model um i've worked with um several professional boxers and what i found with that was, um, again, a lot of these boxers, they don't do any form of functional training. They just hit stuff hard and lift stuff hard. And what I found was simple things like Im- improving their thoracic rotation made incredible gains because, you know, in, 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 if someone has longer arms than you, but you have more thoracic rotation, you can almost level the playing field with reach. Yes. And that just that one thing is a game changer. And so because a lot of them, you know, as you know, Paul, they they get trained into these kythotic flexed positions to defend their their rib cage from being hit, and their heads down, they're ch- near in this flexed pronated position. So obviously that retards breathing, so they're not going to get as much oxygen to the muscles. And obviously they because they're in this kythotic position, they're going to lack thoracic extension uh, or to re- or the ability to reverse the thoracic spine. So they are obviously going to lose a lot of rotation as well. And so what I found was improving their posture 
Um, even though they have to flex afterwards, really unwinding that outside of their training and improving their thoracic rotation, they just were, they were like amazed that they were able to actually get more range in their punches and also rotate faster because there's not as much scar tissue around their thoracic spine because, you know, we're breaking all of that sort of stuff down. So in a standing rotation, they're rotating faster. And then obviously they have far better balance because I'm getting them on Swiss balls. Um, and getting them to throw punches on Swiss balls. And then when they get on the floor, it's like, wow, it's like their power went up. So people like David Hay, who's, um, who's very well known in boxing. He, um, was a former undisputed cruiserweight boxing champion, as well as a former, um, WBC heavyweight boxing champion who only retired from boxing last year. So I worked with him for about, um, nine months, um, to help improve his functional, um, components of his thoracic spine to help alleviate sacred like joint dysfunction and stuff. So that was really good. And then another well-known boxer who was preparing himself for a title fight, um, I actually trained him again, using the functional stuff I'd learned from you as well as other nutritional stuff, because as you know, most boxers haven't got a clue about nutrition. They just think eat less, starve yourself and, and sweat. And that's how you lose weight. So, um, you know, I taught him how to eat more to lose weight and he won his, his title eliminator, which allowed him to fight for the world title and allowed him to, to earn millions from that. So that was a game changer for him because he was only 25 at the time and his boxing manager, um, his boxing manager basically said that, um, he had starved. He hadn't been able to eat food. On the day before a weigh-in for five years. Yeah, that's typical so, boxing silliness. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was great. And then from a martial arts point of view, I remember um, a Czech practitioner who was level one practitioner brought a friend to me who was a professional kickboxer. And he said, Warren, can you actually do something with this guy? So I said, okay, show me what you've got. You know, throw some punches and kicks and I'll hold the kick shields and stuff. And he did it, and I was like, I could see he. And a lot of this, and I, and I'm not just saying this because we're on the air and bigging up Paul, but honestly, a lot of identifying um, substitution patterns as you taught us from you made me see where he was losing in a deficit on power, and I just made a few tweaks in in like five minutes to how he throws punches, taught him how to open his thoracic spine, and. It was like night and day. Five minutes later, he was hitting the pads like maybe 20% harder. And the Czech practitioner, he filmed it on his phone. And he was just smiling from ear to ear. And he's like, wow, I don't know how you did that in five minutes. Because this guy was a world champion kickboxer. And in five minutes, just doing a few tweaks, seeing the substitution patterns that he had created over the years, improved him, you know, like I said, maybe 20%. Like the, the sound effect from his punches was deafening prior to that when he throwed punches. It wasn't. And those sort of things just kind of attest to the proficiency of, you know, the Czech, Czech system and the Czech model. And obviously, you know how I run with it. I absolutely love it. And so many of my elite athletes in all fields of sport have gained tremendously from it, you know, martial arts as well as just elite sports professionals in general. Yeah, so it sounds to me uh, that the model I developed for first enhancing flexibility as a means of enhancing stability, then improving stability 
to develop an individual for strength training. And that then lays the foundation for power training. And, and as a side note, almost all martial arts and boxers spend almost all their time doing high speed or power training, but they don't do the stability training, the flexibility training, the joint mobility training, or even functional strength training. So they're basically using high speed movements, many of which are rotational. And if they get better and better at those, then they get a bigger and bigger deficit between the outer unit or prime mover muscles and the inner unit or stabilizer muscles. And ultimately, it leads to all sorts of problems like chronic elbow, shoulder, neck, back injuries. And so it seems to me like you've really uh, made to been able to help people just applying even the initial stages of uh, mobilizing the body properly and restoring flexibility. Yeah, massively. I mean, like even things like, you know, the way, the only way they do, um, any form of inverted column, columns, um, commas, uh, core exercises on the ground when they do rotational sit-ups with their knees up and they're tapping their elbows to their knees. And they just know, and I, I learned this from you, there's no way you can rotate as fast on the ground as you can standing up. Yeah. But yet, the only time they rotate is standing up. So there's no correlation. What's the point of doing rotational work on the ground? You're not on the ground when you fight. You know, you're standing. So why don't you learn how to rotate standing? So a lot of the medicine ball drills that we learned from you and a lot of the woodchop stuff, they just weren't doing. And so that was like a, another game change for them because now they're applying the principle of rotation in a standing environment with gravity as opposed to without. And that, again, once you do it, it's like it's so stupid, it's simple, but it makes sense, but nobody was doing it. Yeah, well, that's why it takes a farm boy from Vancouver Island to see the obvious <laughs> and point it out to people. But uh, when we look at martial arts as systems of conditioning, what do you feel skillfully taught martial arts actually provides people? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, even though um, you know we, we were talking about that there's not so much of an element of stability in, in, in martial arts, there is definitely um, an element of more so than boxing, um, unless you train correctly. But, you know, if you're proficient in in boxing, oh, sorry, in, in martial arts, um, and you're skillful, I think it shows one you have to have really good flexibility, not just flexibility to do box splits, but the application of flexibility. And a good example of that is uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. Um, you know, he's he's famous for doing the box splits. And um, there's this thing called 180 degree sidekick, which is basically where you kick to the moon, you know, you kick to the ceiling in a box split. So you're basically doing a box split stand in, in, in a sidekick. And I remember learning from him, tying into your question, that having the ability to do the box splits doesn't just mean, you know, kick someone seven feet tall in the head. But what it means is you have the openness and flexibility of the hips to be able to throw a kick at hip height. Um, without having a possible injury because you have so much flexibility is no you're not compromised in that way so um you know one of the good things about people that have really good um skill as a martial artist is i find i find from my point of view that a skillful martial artist they can translate their flexibility because they you know they have you know flexible hamstrings hips typically flexible shoulders you know, every joint is pretty much open because you need that for flex for martial arts. So you have enough flexibility to be able to do normal um, tasks in life. Um, you normally have a good amount of strength. 
not so much endurance unless you're doing wrestling. You have a norm, a good amount of flex, um, functional strength because, you know, they're only working with their body. They don't really weight train or anything or use machines. They're working with another body. So they have really good, um, general, um, strength and they're very quick. So I always feel that a martial artist or martial arts is a good base for movement of life because you need to have almost every facet of functionality to be able to be proficient. And then also a good correlation to be able to go into any other sport because most sports demand flexibility, strength, and power. They don't, like I said, have so much of the stability, but they have it to a lesser degree because they stand on one leg quite often. So I think martial arts is a really good base. And if you're proficient, it's a really good base for life movement, life skills, as well as um, all other sports in general. Well, martial arts requires a lot of what I call dynamic stability. So yeah, as opposed yeah. to, you know, standing there and holding a, a you know, a, a, a box of laundry or a deadlift bar, mm. it's the ability to maintain optimal joint function at high speed while moving and while being perturbed or hit, which disturbs your own inner sense of balance because you're getting a force from outside of yourself. Mm. So the, you know, the, the functional basis is first you have to develop base stability, then you have to integrate it as dynamic stability. And, you know, I saw that's quite missing in martial arts and boxing training because there's just, you know, there's almost yeah. no, skill in that kind of training. Although uh, yeah. Rob Garcia, one of my practitioners was Oscar De, Oscar De La Hoya's trainer for 10 years. So I know at least some marsh, some boxers were getting some of that kind of training, but it's only guys like you and some of the other Czech professionals that are working with these people that are introducing these concepts. And uh, I've been a consultant to a number of different branches of the military worldwide. And we have several Navy SEALs that have done my training and brought that back. And done a lot of work to rehab the Navy SEALs conditioning based on the Czech Institute's training principles. So it's definitely starting to get out there, but you know, these things take a long time to get to the public. Mm, yeah, definitely. Now, I kind of wanted to share something before we go into the next question. I kind of wanted to share this as, as a story. Um, I remember one time I spoke to you um, on the HLC level one or two um, and I, I, I was talking to you about my favorite boxer at the time, uh, a guy called Roy Jones, who I personally think is the greatest boxer ever. And I remember I said to you, he's the greatest boxer ever, in my, my opinion, but he doesn't have really good posture. And I said, why is that? And then you said, aha, but how much better would he be? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> that always stood out to me because I always thought at the time, but isn't it? good for them to be able to train themselves into these flexed positions because doesn't that support boxing? Because that's what they all do. And that was kind of like a game changer for me. And as well as when you said um, athletes perform well in spite of their exercise program, not because of it. Those were kind of, I just wanted to just put that out there. Those were game changers for me to kind of realize how important this functional stuff is for everything. Well, the truth is, <laughs> and you know, I've consulted with many professional sports teams, Olympic committees, universities, uh, and you know, people at the highest level in in a wide variety of sports. And the I can tell you, the truth is, more great athletes have been ruined by their conditioning programs and their coaches than mm -hmm. have ever been created. 
Yeah, yeah, I can definitely attest to that. I mean, when I see people like um, David Hay, I mean, the guy was, he, he was getting by on talent, total talent, you know, rather than the actual training. Um, it was just total talent. And, and that's why I, I think that, you know, to your point, you see a lot of these um, fighters, other than just the depreciation through constant impact on their bodies, you know, they get to a certain point, maybe 32, and they just diminish. And a lot of them retire. People like Ricky Hatton, who's quite a famous English boxer who fought um, Floyd Mayweather, um, he retired at like 27, 28. And a lot of them are retiring because their training isn't supportive to their, their, their sport. It's, well, like you said, it takes away from their sport so much that they just can't have that longevity. Um, and it kind of, Reminds me of this guy called Bernard Hopkins. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's quite a well-known um, boxer who started boxing after he left prison at 23. I think by then Mike Tyson had lost his first world title. And this guy, he started to do a lot of really high-level functional training. And um, he actually only retired from boxing at 40, no, at 50. And he's in a Guinness Book of Records for winning... Um, two world titles after the age of 47. That's amazing. Yeah. And he said, he started to look at the way people were training. And he said, look, these young bucks are training five, six hours a day. He goes, a fight's only 36 minutes. <laughs> he goes, what are you doing? Yeah. So he, he's, uh, he started training for 36, 40 minutes because that's all you need. And he had that longevity. So like I said, uh, you know, a lot of the training is taken away from what they did. And a lot of it isn't functional anyway. Typically I use... Uh, a thirty percent buffer. So, uh, if you're if you're training for a ten k, then I I will include training runs thirty percent longer. If you're training for uh, if you're if your uh, three rounds of amateur boxing is nine minutes, mm -hmm. then I will train you to be at peak condition for another round. So I will condition you for a four round fight to get you ready yeah. for a three round fight and. I found anything – and it took me quite a number of years of practice and, and observing and researching, meaning researching what was happening with athletes and with myself to come to that magic number. But I found that it works quite good because if you go over 30%, you start basically – one, you have to train in ways that you're using the wrong energy systems for the sport. And two, you risk adding more physical stress – then the athlete can recover from and still perform well because they're leaving too much in the gym. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, that's definitely if we move on now, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, of course there's some emotional self-management and mental self-management skills that come through, uh, you know, martial arts training and boxing or any of the combat of sports, which my experience with that is, you know, like when point finding, point fighting, I found it mentally and emotionally frustrating for the reasons I expressed. But to stay in point fighting, you do have to learn to manage your mind and your emotions or you just, you know, make a lousy point fighter. You might knock somebody out, but then you look like the village idiot in a tournament. Um, so there, there is those uh, levels of development. But I personally found that those things really – the the sort of the critical link in those developmental factors is the uh, teacher, the master, the sifu, or the instructor. Because well, if that person's not well developed, they can't take you any further than they've gone. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think, um, great question. I think there's a, a, a film that, um, really a quite well-known film that really summarizes that. And that's the Karate Kid. Right. Yes. Um, very good. And you see, yeah, and you see that in the Karate Kid, where the Karate Kid learns from the humble, quiet master who tends to his flowers and was in the Vietnam War, but saw war and saw death and realized the impact of death on society. And he kind of moved away from it. And he just saw martial arts as a beautiful expression of love. And then he tried to teach that to the Karate Kid, you know, went in sweet floors to find a girlfriend and you know, don't fight until someone hits you, then only defend yourself. And then the, the, the opposite of that was the Cobra Kai school where the guy had a painful past, which he hadn't been able to kind of get rid of. And he was living as a child. I remember you gave the example of, um, like a, a child with a bazooka. Yeah. And that's what this, this guy was. He's just a baby with a bazooka. He had, he had so many unmet needs. He was unloved. And the only love he got was the adoration he got from his students. And the only respect he had was through fear and, and using his power as the authority figure, the master to kind of put fear into his students' hearts and make them win for him. And he was obviously an example of someone who had so many unmet needs, so much pain that he had never um, overcome bottle that up into rage and then funnel that into his students. And we saw that in the film where one of the scenes in the film where, you know, the karate kid got to the final and was fighting his best student and the master of the Cobra Kai basically said, cheat, yeah, break his leg. And that just showed you an, a master or a lack of mastery, someone who just doesn't get it, who's a child with skills rather than an actual master. And then on the other side of it, you saw the quiet, gentle master who was teaching um, the karate kid about love, respect. And I think that kind of, like you said, kind of shows you the danger of having tools as a child and the need to have a true master. And so for me, you know, a, a true master is somebody who has the power, has the skill, has the knowledge, but never needs to show it. You know that that person's a master when they don't even need to show you how much mastery they have. You know, they don't need to punch you hard to show you. They don't need to do a hundred press ups to show you how strong they are. Their, their mastery is in how they deal with psychological adversity, how they're able to mentor you through your own pain, how they're able to, um, mother you or father you when you feel lost, when you feel that you've let them down. Um, you know, all these sort of things are true, like almost like like a, a mother or father figure, regardless of how you perform that day, they love you the same. And um, it reminds me of this um, UFC fighter who's my favorite UFC fighter, a guy called, they call him Mighty Mouse. And he's globally recognized as the greatest um, MMA fighter in the world. And um, he went on this massive, long, unbeaten streak in the UFC. And um, he, every interview, they'd say to him, but suppose you lose, suppose you lose, because he hadn't lost in such, for such a long time. And his answer was, you know what? My wife and my children will still love me, so why am I bothered? Well, And he just let go of the outcome. Yes. And, and I, I've, I, you know, in meditating on, on all the pain caused by losing and the way our cultures our culture or, or most cultures handle losing. Um, I talk to my soul about this and say, you know, how do I really, as a coach and a therapist, 
because a lot of people have a lot of pain over their perceived loses, you know, and it can disable people, especially if you, you know, like my interview with Kyle Kingsbury, you saw he had a string of losses in it and it started to, Mm. you know, mess with him. And I said to my soul, how can I help people reframe this? So it's more uh, spiritual, more developmental, more supportive. And my soul said, get rid of the concept of the loser and replace it with, <coughs> with mm. learner. If we yeah. have winners and learners, then we realize getting beat is getting taught. So if no yes. matter what sport you're in, you say, okay, now I've met a master who has a skill or skills that I can study and I can yeah. learn from them. And what a gift. Then, then if you really, you know, like I said, I used to give my opponents maximum opportunity to lose. So when I got into, yeah. into the, the boxing ring or into any kind of a kickboxing or martial arts situation, I knew how well I prepared myself. And I used to say the first guy I want to hug and kiss is the guy that beats me because A, I yeah. know how hard he had to work to do it. And B, mm. now I know there's somebody that's teaching me how to improve my skills. Yes. So I think yeah. I think we really need to uh, at all levels of sports, especially for children and school, start applying the winners and learners concept because yeah. a lot of great athletes who have the potential to be very, very high level or even world champions lose because they don't have enough emotional development and mental development. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that is so good. I mean, like you said, I mean, there's a guy who, the guy who trained um, Conor McGregor, his trainer wrote a book recently called you either win or you learn. And like you said, when people don't have enough self autonomy, self identity and self love, they, especially when they get into martial arts, because they have that unmet need, they funnel that, that, unmet need into the need to win and it's almost like winning is winning in life and so every single time they win they get the adoration and the respect from their peers and they almost feel better but they're really not dealing with the problem that created the need for them to actually follow that rage into winning so they think that winning a fight is winning in life but then what happens when they lose they no longer have an identity because their whole, the whole practice was based on constantly winning because winning means respect. Winning means love. Winning, winning means money. Winning means adoration. So if my whole life is based on if I win, I go into a room, I get a discount because now I'm famous or I get a new car because I'm famous or I get the girl because I'm the winner and I'm, I have to keep winning to keep, keep up with the Joneses, but I'm never going to lose. And I can't lose because if I lose, I lose all of that because my identity is based on winning. And what happens when you don't win? Yes. You know, one of the things that I've seen in my career with all aspects of martial arts and boxing um, is that one of the challenges with what you're describing is that when these people go into their family relationships, their spousal relationships or work relationships, or even with their friends, they actually, if they aren't getting their way, start resorting to physical violence as a means of controlling yeah. people. In other words, they become like a silverback gorilla that if you don't do what he wants you to do, he'll just beat the hell out of you. And so mm. I've seen, you know, many of them get put in jail uh, doing things like going into bars and and getting drunk and just beating the hell out of people, and so that's 
that whole uh, th- that whole mental emotional trap. And the other thing is, is that a lot of these guys use anger to motivate themselves to get ready for fights. And so what happens is yeah. they they don't realize that when they're using anger to propel themselves, that they have to keep themselves in a state of anger. And that basically keeps yeah. you in a state of separation from life because to be angry is really an emotion that separates us. Yeah, you have to be angry at everyone. Yeah, and, and you and I work with an athlete. Uh, you know, I won't say her name, but you know who I'm talking about, yeah. who her her primary mode of motivating herself was anger. And when I addressed oh, that yeah. with her, uh, it was very, very hard for her. And she literally said, I don't know if I can get enough steam up, enough energy up to do what I have to do in the Olympics without anger. Yeah. And I said, yes, but you've been having yeah. a hard time reaching the level to get back into the Olympics because you, your anger carries over into your relationship yep. with yourself, with your spouse, with your family, yep. and you don't have enough energy to support that negative emotional charge. And you're being isolated from life because you constantly are using anger as your inspiration. And it, it's just a, it's kind of like uh, eating poison and hoping to get healthier. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like, you know, that, that whole thing about, um, I don't know who I am without my pain. Yeah. They become, and something I remember heard from you, uh, maybe a couple of years ago that I was like, wow. It's like, you know, when we talk about facilitation, we, you know, a lot of times we just relate it to, um, motor pathways. But when you explain that even anger can be facilitated. So when you become angry, each time you get angrier, the easier it is to get angry. Yes. So now if you were a child that was angry and you were angry at mum or dad or angry at dad beating up mum and you weren't strong enough to defend mum, you can't wait until you're old enough to have enough strength to be able to defend mum. And then maybe you might be up dad and end up in jail, but then you're angry and then you come out of jail and then you want to funnel that anger into something. So you choose something that can hurt people, which is martial arts or boxing. So you haven't actually mastered what the trigger was you've only learned to funnel that rage into something else and you best win every single time. And then when you lose or when you retire, because you haven't dealt with the unresolved issue of why you were even driven to do that through that anger, you have no identity. So now you're lost. So now you take cocaine or crack or something else because you need some other trigger to kind of mask or bury the symptoms that you've been funneling into something such as a combat sport. And, you know, this has to stop. We have to start, you know, kind of getting people to understand that the rage or the label that they've created is not the unmet need, which is like what you taught me. You know, it's not the unmet need. What's the unmet need? And that's what you see today with a lot of these young, angry children. They think, okay, I'm going to use crime and now I'm just going to develop myself so that I'm better at at crime by doing martial arts or boxing. And that's just the wrong thing because... As you said, anger begets anger, rage begets rage, so you don't heal. Yeah, no. So what are some of the systems that you feel are, are martial arts systems that are founded on spiritual development versus just physical defense, if there are any? Yeah. Other um, than you know, Kung Fu. Yeah, other than Kung Fu, which we, we spoke about before, it, basically there has to be a difference between traditional martial arts and and um the you know the martial the general sports kind of sports karate or sports martial arts of today and in the sports 
side of things, you know, they may be not so much tradition, but in traditional martial arts, um, there's definitely a spiritual development or path. And the, I find that the martial arts that kind of embody that, that kind of spiritual development most are things like Aikido. Yes. Because in Aikido, there's no, there's no real strike and it's all from the point of view of disabling and defending or deflective. There's no real technique where you actually learn how to punch someone. You first, the first thing you learn in Aikido, especially as well, as well karate, the first move you learn is block. Mm-hmm. It's not strike, it's block. So, and blocking is being defensive or defenseless. So that itself is quite a spiritual um, part because you're first of all learning to disable somebody rather than to hurt them. And then obviously in Aikido and Karate, as we kind of t- touched on before, there's the honor of it where when you finish the class, you do these kind of almost like incantations where it says, um, seek propriety, um, respect and honor your character, respect others, refrain from violence. And you kind of shout these kind of affirmations at the end of the class. So those are very much steeped in um, spirituality and honor. And then um, things like obviously Tai Chi, which we haven't mentioned, but obviously there's tons of spiritual development in Tai Chi, Qigong. And then I think really for women as well, something that's really quite spiritual and soft and very yin um, for women is Wing Chun, right. which a lot of people will, will say it was developed more so for women or for lighter bodies. Um, and because it's very yin and very soft, um, and obviously that yin element is more I- internalizing, more spiritual, I think that itself is also a really good martial art um, that has a form of spiritual development. And then you've got other things such as um, thai, sorry, um, Muay Thai, Muay Thai yeah. even though Muay Thai is quite, yeah, even though it's quite violent, um, they do have the tradition of all the dancing and the ceremonial side of things, um, and the prayers and worship side of it. So that is also this kind of steeped in some form of spiritual development also, because you have to learn to honor the gods as well as learn how to punch and kick. Yeah. And sometimes that doesn't get uh, taken home, even at the highest levels. Uh, yeah. My buddy, Lloyd Anderson, who is my sparring partner for three years in boxing, uh, he was the Canadian champion, lightweight, and one of the most powerful <laughs> human beings I've ever met. In fact, this guy was – his punching power was so unbelievable. I remember vividly we were in sparring and and – he was so good that the coach would let him spar with the heavyweight who at the time was the Canadian national champion. And one day with 16 ounce gloves and headgear, Lloyd knocked the heavyweight champion out so bad. The guy didn't even know his name. He was wandering around like he was completely stoned out of his mind, ended up having to take a 90 day layoff from boxing. And Lloyd uh, Mm -hmm. then got into kickboxing. He won his first eight amateur fights. Nobody made it past the second round with him. Then he turned pro and on his eighth fight, he had to go to Japan for the world title. And uh, his his opponent did something that I hadn't heard of. They shaved his hair right before the fight and they left all the clippings inside of his hair. Oh, wow. So whenever they were in close together, Lloyd's mm. eyes got full of all these short little pieces of hair and he could barely see. And his body was covered with black hair. 
And so uh, it, it, my point is, is even at the highest level of martial arts mm. where there should be the most honor, respect, and the, mm. and the deep practices that it takes most people to get to that level, um, we still have the dark side of it uh, that comes mm. out. You know, yeah. today there's a massive boom in the interest in mixed martial arts, as you know, and and it's it's surprisingly attractive to females. I'm curious as to your opinion. What do you feel is driving this surge of interest in mixed martial arts worldwide? I think one of the things um, massively is um, the power of marketing. The UFC, um, for those who don't know, it's Ultimate Fighting Championship. It's become like one it's the one of the fastest if not the fastest growing sport in the world when it comes to viewership so and also from a um an age point of view they say um it's like between they've got the demographic of 18 to 34 so that's that kind of golden demographic watching them so because of that that's they've got a lot of the um generation x kind of people watching that so people obviously want to imitate what they see so that's massively contributed to people wanting to get into it and also because you can make money in it now a lot of people obviously as we know there are a lot of people that don't want to educate themselves they don't want to go through the school of life and learn the lessons of life to be able to have enough mastery to create their own businesses or things like that so they they want to just do the quick fix what can i do i'm tough i'm going to go into fighting so there's a lot of people that are seeing, well, UFC, mixed martial arts, that's a way to get into fighting. I can make money that way. So there are some points of view where people are just getting into it that way. But from the other side of it, um, the beauty of MMA is it kind of ticks all the boxes for people. It, it gives you the discipline that you need. It makes you mentally tough, which is where you see a lot of these people that are going for the tough mother and, you know, a lot of these, um, long distance runs or iron man people want to do that level of conditioning they just want to go into the sea they don't want to go into the trenches so a lot of them are kind of going into something that still seems quite tough um but in a more of a controlled beautiful gym environment so it ticks all the boxes of getting fit getting strong getting flexible learning how to defend yourself having self-discipline and feeling you know feeling strong within your own body it ticks all these boxes where if you just learn basketball or cricket, you may have fun, but you're not, you might not be able to protect yourself. So I think it crosses both. It teaches you how to protect yourself, but it's also making you fit at the same time. And because of, as we said, the advent of UFC, it's become attractive. So I think those are the main booms as to why people are getting into it. The other thing as well is because it's as real as you get when it comes to MMA, a lot of women are actually feeling, whereas self-defense is... You know, if you go to a self-defense class, it's, 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 it's crap. You know, you don't learn. I mean, someone throws a punch at you five miles an hour and you catch it and you just twist their arm and you put them into a chair. That's, that's not, that's not life. So I think a lot of women are realizing I'm not really going to be able to protect myself if I learn self-defense as a self-defense class. But if I do MMA, I think I will able be, you know, be able to truly dis- defend myself. And before, I finish this point. I'll just quickly say something. Um, so recently, and just to prove that point, recently, like I'm saying, like maybe five weeks ago, in Brazil, there was this UFC fighter who, um, and this is all true, it's been filmed and stuff. There was this UFC fighter who um, was sat waiting for a, a taxi, and this man um, came up to her 
and was talking to her or something. And anyway, he tried to drag her into a car and she basically beat the crap out of him. And they showed a picture of him. His face was all bloody and stuff. And like, she's this really beautiful Brazilian woman. And it, it turned out she was a UFC fighter. So it kind of shows you that women that take this up can really defend themselves against a stronger adversary. So I think that stories like that are really empowering women to kind of want to get into something like MMA because obviously with the movement of women becoming more self-empowered, something like true mixed martial arts is only going to strengthen their resolve in that sense. Yeah. And then of course there's the uh, unconscious, unconsciously driven desire for individuation, which in, in our antiquity was part of our ceremonial process of initiation rites, which most tribes had some kind of a painful ordeal that took you right to the edge of your life. And I think that because, you know, through the history of the development of man on the planet, we have had a long, long, endless string of uh, territorial wars, fighting over hunting grounds, fighting over to, uh, women, fighting over uh, valuables, uh, you know, all the things that still go on today, except we, you know, do it mm -hmm. other ways like the military or, <laughs> or, uh, computer systems now, you know, right? yeah. Uh, yeah. Donald Trump being president. There you go. Um, but, uh, you know, my observation from a lot of study of this is, is that because we don't have any structured tribal systems and we don't have any uh, authentic rites of passage for young people anymore, I feel that there's just an innate drive for them to go put themselves in situations where they really have to get over the little boy, little girl of themselves and realize that, you know, laying down on the mat and crying doesn't get you anywhere. You have to really yeah. suck it up yeah. and you have to deal with pain. You got to deal with an adversary that isn't going to back down just because you got tears in your eyes. Yeah. So it seems yeah. to me like martial arts is, is now becoming sort of a resurgence of a, an initiation process. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, you know, a lot of these rites of passage and, and a lot of this I'd heard from you when you were talking to Ben Greenfield about um, the um, rites of passage and stuff. And obviously a lot of these rites of passage are fighting to survive. It's some form of physical trial where they have to be quite physical and maybe they have to kill a lion or they have to, as you said, run through a line of, of men and get hit. So that's an aspect of fighting and you have to prove your toughness. But like you said, we don't really have that in modern society. So it's becoming more of a resurgence because as, as you say, there's a lot of little boys in big, in big bodies. And if you want to become a man in martial arts, you get knocked down, you best get right back up. And as soon as if you've never been in a fight in school, but you go to martial arts, you're going to get hit. And if you get hit in the face and you start to see blood, that's that first sign of becoming a man or a woman because you have to get up because you're in a class and you have to toughen up because, you know, you're, there's no way you're going to practice martial arts for five years or 10 years and never get hit. So part of that getting hit and getting up and overcoming pain is almost like a rite of passage where you have to go through the fire. Sometimes, like you said, you will spar with someone who's better than you, no matter how hard you try. And if you get angry, it's not going to change anything. So that part of it forces you to just learn to almost control your emotions in a fight. 
And that's becoming more um, mature because a child just gets angrier and angrier when they're losing. But an adult becomes more more calculated and more calm because they realize what they were doing doesn't work. So that's kind of like another right of, of passage of maturity where when you're sparring, you realize anger is not going to help you in this, in this situation because skill will beat anger eventually. So, you know, you, you see your own blood, you realize anger doesn't work, you man up, you get up, you toughen up and you mature. So I think those are some of the aspects that martial arts kind of teaches you. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that in, in the martial arts and realize, you know what, I am weak, I am vulnerable. And maybe martial arts is the way, you know, traditional martial arts is the way to kind of get me to experience what it's like to be in a fight without actually being in a fight. Because, you know, some of my clients, and I'm sure some of yours have said as well, that growing up, they never had a very strong father figure and they never got into fights. So they actually don't know if they're tough. Yeah. And, and they don't want to find out by getting in a real fight because, as we know today, most of the men that are fighting are cowards and they use guns yeah. and knives. So you don't want to know what it's like to be in a fight with a gun. So you want to know how tough you are. So the safest way to do it might be in a martial art class because no one's got guns and knives and you can actually, if you get beat up, the instructor will say stop. So it's a good testing ground to kind of, you know, wet your feet and kind of become more of a man or a woman in a, in a, in a safer environment. So a lot of these men that think they're weak are kind of being pulled into this. One well. of the things that, that that's a concern for me uh, with my depth of knowledge and, and work with thousands of people and all their problems is that, yes, I see that this is a, a, a potential initiation process and I can see how the psyche of young men and women is drawing them toward it archetypally because it really falls square under the warrior archetype, which is it's it's mm. an archetype that we all are basically um, engaged in at some level because the warrior's function is to defend the people, to defend the tribe. It's to die for something mm. greater than itself. You know, itself, so when yeah. we were going through initiation rites in tribal societies, it was so that we clearly understood that we may have to face death. And the reason we do it is to protect the children, to protect the women, to protect the food supplies, to protect the home, to protect uh, the territory. So it was an initiation process that was designed to teach you to sacrifice yourself even to the death for the greater good. But what I keep seeing happen yeah. is, is people get more and more confident in themselves and then they become less and less, uh, emotionally flexible or mentally flexible flexible and the next thing you know they're uh punching somebody in the face because that person got into an argument with them about taking their their space in a parking lot or cutting them off in traffic yeah. and i i think that's one of the the, the that's the other side of the double-edged sword and and in my experience you know when I fought on the army boxing team or on the Campbell River boxing team for example or even in taekwondo when we were in tournaments where it's your team against the other team. So there's 12 weight classes in boxing. We would fight, you know, the Russian boxing team or the Cuban boxing team or, uh, you know, various teams from around the world. We fought, you know, in the international circuit. So th there was a lot of emphasis on the fact that you have to manage yourself inside the ring and outside the ring, knowing that if you get 
points against you or you get caught cheating or doing a lot of the things that people do, you actually weaken the whole team's chance of winning. And an example of that is that on the Army boxing team, we had so many problems before I came the trainer, that is. We had so many problems with mm. with guys, you know, showing up to the boxing gym two days before a fight. They're still 12 pounds heavier than their fighting weight. And so they would end mm. up, you know, putting on sweatsuits and going into the sauna and, and skipping rope and doing push-ups and burning themselves out and taking these things called piss pills, which stimulated the kidneys. And they would literally be standing in the toilets pissing blood sometimes because they were in, uh, the, the kidney system was so overdriven. And so what the coaches did was implemented a policy, which I hated because I was always down to weight and ready on time. I had a system that took me three months to drop the weight because I had to go from 168 to 147. And I only, my walking around body fat at that time was about 7%. So it was something I had to do very carefully or I would just end up like wow. a wet dish rag in a boxing ring, which many of these guys did. That's how they got beat. They mm. just, they didn't have anything mm. left. But what the coaches did when I had no input in this they made it a rule that if any fighter is not within three pounds of fighting weight two weeks before the fight, they moved all of us into a barracks. Every one of us, all of us that lived off post with our families, we all had to eat, sleep, live, piss, shit, do everything together, and we all had to police each other. And the more of you that were off your fighting weight, the harder we trained, and some of these training days could be six or seven hours. And what they would do is they'd close the doors and the windows of the gym in the summertime when it was 95 degrees outside and it would get to be a hundred and to 125 degrees in the gym. And they would work the living hell out of everybody. Now from a strategic perspective, that wasn't very smart because now you just burn everybody out. But what they were, what they were really yeah. doing is saying there's a cost to not thinking of the team and the cost is you're going to have to live with the team and train with the team and they're going to ride your ass 24 hours a day. And, and so looking back on that, that methodology, I can really see that they were taking the initiation rights to the level of the group to teach group responsibility, which would be yeah. the synonymous for tribal responsibility or social responsibility and it concerns me that that part's missing in martial arts uh, systems at large today, because really what's happening, it's producing a lot of people that are confident that they can fight. And unfortunately, they go out and, and uh, take advantage of that and beat people up. And we had plenty yeah. of problems with, uh, you know, boxers on the boxing team going out and getting drunk and beating the hell out of people in bars. And next thing you know, the cops were at the boxing arena trying to figure out who it was. And so that was a big debacle and problem as well. You know, the other thing too, is we have Darwin's theory, survival of the fittest, which even though it's very well scientifically demonstrated now that that's not how nature actually works, we still have that mentality of the stronger I am and the tougher I am, the more I can get yeah. my way, which is really going back to more like the silverback mentality, except now you got women doing yeah. it too. Yeah. 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 That brings me to a point when we talk about, you know, that, that saying the strong rule the weak, but the wise rule them all. And a lot of that wisdom is kind of being lost because you often see uh, a lot of these men that are just children. Again, they haven't, they haven't had that development of self or self character. And they have an argument with a woman 
And if they're losing the argument because they can't win mentally, they resort to physical tactics, which is a child that is beat them up. And, you know, a lot of, as we know, most people now, nowadays operate on such a low level of consciousness. They don't study, they don't read, they don't understand vocabulary and diction. So if, if anytime they're uncomfortable in a situation, they lash out. It just hurt people. We see that all the time with people that don't know how to express their pain or their anger or their resentment. They don't have the words. So they go out and get a gun and they kill everyone just because they just do not how to express themselves. So again, they use violence as a means of expressing what they can't vocally. And a lot of that, again, is to do with lack of um, development as a child, not going through some form of rite of passage where they realize there's a consequence to everything. And, you know, just not having enough respect for human life. As, as we know with video games nowadays, you can get on a video game and play like you're, you've got a gun, you're killing people. So we're losing this. We're becoming desensitized to the meaning of life and desensitized to pain. So we, can, we just feel lashing out is only hurting someone rather than realizing that when you hurt another you're hurting yourself. well the other thing too is that in video games the characters die but then just pop back up so what i see exactly. is a lot of young people actually don't realize that that's not how life works and that you can hurt and kill people and they won't just pop up and it can be disabling for the rest of their lives and it's a it's a very very damaging thing and and that's one of the deep concerns I have about all these violent video games being used so yeah. rampantly. I mean, you walk through airports. Everywhere I go, I see kids on these death and destruction video games and listening to absolute crap music. And uh, parents just seem to be so disconnected from the fact that a child's mind is very, very open and highly programmable. And they have yeah. no defenses against what's going into them. But the parents don't realize yeah. that the the what what most people think is that this is imaginary but they don't realize that the child has no way of discerning the imaginary from the real and and i mm. think that's a you know eventually i think the government's going to have to step in and put some kind of limitations just like you know you're not supposed to drink alcohol till you're a certain age you know, yeah. we, we, and you, you see, we have rated or rated, uh, R movies or movies where you're not supposed to bring children in, but I'm always blown away. And you go there, there and there's someone yeah. sitting there with a three-year-old in their arms or a five-year-old right next to them. And I'm yeah. like, what yeah. in the world yeah. are you doing? I mean, this is like heavy sex and death and destruction, you know, kind of like a, yeah. a Jason Statham movie. And you got a child in there thinking that's how the world really works. And, and these are very, very big problems. And that, leads me into sort of my closing question for the interview today is, you know, we've talked a lot about spirituality and martial arts. Uh, I want to know what is your definition of spirituality? When you use that word, what are you really saying? Spirituality for martial arts. You know, I think this, the spiritual path of a martial artist is really focusing on conquering yourself your self limits and knowing that you know they have this saying that um the the sky is the limit well no the sky isn't the limit because if you say the sky is a limit that's imposing a limit so for me one of the beautiful spiritual components of the martial arts is mastery of self whether it be mastery of your emotions mastery of your anger mastery of an opponent mastery of your physical body 
you know, pushing yourself to your limits. Because as you said, you know, sometimes in martial arts, as they say, if you're not living life on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And that's what they kind of summarize in martial arts. They try to find what your limits are and they try to get you to go beyond your limits. So the only way you can do that is with a strong mind, a calm mind. So being able, like, when you get to a point where your physical body is is crumbling, but your mind is still strong, you can only be touching the spiritual to get to that point. And that's what we kind of talk about trying to enter the flow state. Being in the flow state where, I heard it in a film, where the spirit takes over the body and guides the mind without thought. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And that's kind of getting in that flow state where everything, like you're at a point in the martial arts where you don't have to think about doing something, it happens. You know, like when Bruce Lee, I often share this thing about Bruce Lee where he says when he first started martial arts, all he thought was a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. As he started to immerse himself in martial arts, he realized the punch was more than just a punch and the kick was more than just a kick. And once he got to the level of true mastery of martial arts, he realized the punch was just a punch and the kick was just a kick. It goes back to that beautiful simplicity. And when you're in that flow stage and your body operates at a level beyond thought, I think that's the true expression of martial arts because it's no longer about effort or fighting against the body. It's surrendering and allowing the body allowing the body to move at the speed it naturally moves at allowing the mind to take over and to just bridge the gap between the two and i think that's the true definition of the spiritual path of mastery of martial one arts one of the things that is still not understood even at very high levels of martial arts you know cage fighting whatever and i've worked with plenty of these people as you know Kyle Kingsbury is an example of that uh, is it they don't understand that the greatest martial arts masters of antiquity ultimately taught their students to stay in a parasympathetic state so that you have equal activation of the right and left brain hemispheres. So you're open, you're spontaneous, you have an abundance of creative Mm. potential, but you're not directed by fight or flight, uh, fear driven responses. And and I think Mm. really, you know, when we look at all the anger and all the violence and all the the violence in families and especially religious families, I mean, my God, I, I you know, if you look at Basil van der Klok's work on on uh, healing trauma and the statistics of violence in families, and having been raised uh, around a lot of Catholic families, I've you know, I thought I had a, a violent upbringing, but some of these Catholic kids were as bad or worse off than than my family was. And when you realize that all this fight or flight type programming right from the very beginning limits your creativity, limits your perception, limits your options, and limits your ability to come up with with solutions that are innate. In other words, you know, when you're in a a, a, a self-defense situation, a legitimate self-defense situation, you don't have time to think rationally and logically. It has to be uh, like you say, from the flow state, so it happens uh, innately. And and if mm. if our martial arts systems were directed more towards spiritual development and realizing that yeah. that yeah. you know my definition definition of spirituality is connecting to a greater whole. So when you go through a tribal initiation, 
you're actually going out of the realm of a child whose needs are all about me. Mommy, I'm hungry. Mommy, I'm thirsty. Mm. Mommy, I'm tired. Mommy, I want a toy. The child is, is all mm. me, 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 I, I, I based. But once you go mm. through an initiation process, you go to we. And as the old saying goes, there is no I in we. So if we mm. could take the martial arts systems and integrate meditation and integrate uh, communication and some of the basic skills that help hold the fabric of a family or a community together, then we would have people that have a lot more confidence in themselves, have a lot more self-control, yeah. a lot more mental clarity, but it would also help them bring their heart into it. Because when you're fighting for fear and for anger, there's no heart in it. It's, it's really, uh, it's really, yeah. uh, well, more brawn than, than brain and more, um, more attack than growth and development and you know it's ready yeah. fire aim behavior yeah 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 they definitely missed the, the point when it comes to um martial arts just just before we close this just something you said that i kind of wanted to share something with with regards to the parasympathetic which i think was beautiful what you said i watched a documentary recently on in search of superhumans and one of the episodes, it was just about um, how you could become superhuman through martial arts. And they, they basically interviewed this abbot and um, they, they hooked him up to a lot of um, uh, um, EMF, um, electromagnetic frequency sort of biofeedback. And biofeedback, yes. So, and um, they basically got a guy to um, hit a stick over his head, like a, like a baseball bat over his head. And before he did it, the Tai Chi, you know, the, the, the monk practiced some Tai Chi for probably a minute. And then he said, okay, do it now. And he did it. And, you know, the baseball bat broke over his head. And what they found when they actually looked at the feedback was that he, just before the baseball bat hit, he dropped into an incredibly low parasympathetic state. And that's why he had no pain. And then they took him to a lab. And they, they found that his bone density was not even as, as thick. Like his skull bone density was 1.6, whereas the average male is about 2.5. And they said, well, he hasn't got a thicker skull. And they said, well, the only thing is the reason why he wasn't in pain is because he was so calm. And he constantly, as a true master, lives in a total parasympathetic state at all times. Yes, and this goes to practices like Iron Shirt Qigong and many of the practices. Mm. Um, I remember when I was at Tony Robbins' house, you know, I was a therapist for him for a number of years back in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, Tony had taken uh, martial arts training from some famous master, but on his wall, he had a picture of the football player, Herschel Walker, doing his, mm, doing uh -huh, his black yeah. belt test with this guy. And one of the tests that they had to do was that you have to let uh, one of the other fighters kick you in the balls. And it showed mm -hmm. Herschel Walker like two and a half feet off the ground. He was getting kicked so hard because part of their training is to learn to cultivate enough life force energy to create an etheric shield around yourself so that your tissues are embedded in this force field of energy, which is what Tai Chi and Qigong masters do all the time. It's no mystery. But it was interesting because when you get into the higher levels of martial arts, 
you learn how to work with energy and you learn how to work with higher levels of consciousness to do the kinds of things mm. that you're describing, what they should have done is they should have measured this person's etheric field, which only now do they have the technology yeah. to, they would have found that around him, if you would have used curly and photography or some of the modern technologies, he would have had a very dense blanket of high vibrational energy protecting him. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, with all of the stuff that we've spoken about, I think the most, for me, the most powerful thing with martial arts as a means of, of life and cultivation is knowing that to be a true martial artist, you have to be at peace with yourself and conquer your own ego and live in that parasympathetic state. And also that the value of martial arts isn't just for somebody who wants to learn how to fight or wants to be a fighter professionally, but like the value of being a human is that knowing that you can protect yourself gives you a certain level of confidence so you don't live in fear you're not in that fight or flight state which again keeps the person in a in a more healthy state and whether you're a banker a doctor a lawyer everyone should practice martial arts for self-esteem self-cultivation you know feeling safe at any time as well as everybody, whether, whether, again, whether they're bankers or doctors, everybody should be into wellness. So I think those two things across the board, whatever your career is, everyone should be into wellness because you are your own body and you're supposed to love yourself. And everyone should learn how, how to protect yourself because you, you feel safer in general, have less sympathetic stress going on because you fear somebody jumping out and attacking you. And I think if we can blend those two things together and like you said, get back into this calmness and this parasympathetic state, then those two things could shift the whole of humanity's perception and the whole of humanity. I agree. Well, Warren, it's been a fascinating interview, and I hope everybody listening has really picked up some some of the wisdom from a guy who has spent a lot of his life engaged in high-level martial arts and then applying his wisdom to helping others achieve their dreams. Where can people find out more about your coaching or gaining access to information that you share with the public? Um, well, best place would be my um, website, which is uh, warrenwilliamscoaching.com. There's online programs and all that sort of stuff there. And then Facebook, which is um, Warren Williams Coaching also on Facebook. Fantastic. And you've also done several blogs for the Czech Institute. So I know... I yeah, so indeed. there's that <laughs> C-H-E-K institute.com. And, and if you search Warren Williams on the uh, search function there, you'll probably find several great blogs, uh, many of which are video blogs that I've seen. So Warren, thank you for sharing. What a, what a, what a great chance to talk about the deeper elements of martial arts and try to shed some, some light on it from a holistic perspective and to see martial arts as training for life and even training for other sports as well as having mm. uh, that opportunity to develop a deeper sense of confidence, trust, and relationship with oneself so that they can contribute more beautifully to a greater whole called family, culture, humanity, and the world. Thank you. Love for you, buddy. Me. Keep up the great work. Thank you. All right. Peace and love. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Warren Williams. You can follow Warren on Instagram at Warren Coaching and his website is warrenwilliamscoaching.com. 
follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog. 